0: And a fly ball,
1: pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner, Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it! What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep, it's up, up and away. A home run for Jeff Conine. Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning. Right field, there's a ball hit by Jeff Conine. past the diving Eric Caros into right field here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. He's retired. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame.
0: Outside the box with Jeff Conine. It's the first episode of the second half now. It feels like the first half flew by. Obviously, we started the show just at the end of the first half, so we'll have some continuity going right into the playoffs. We're going to talk a lot about that today. A lot about what we think each team needs to do to get to where they need to go and a lot of the just second half storyline. So excited for that in this episode. Jeff, you've got a jersey. It's a Padres jersey. I'm excited to try to guess what it is but here we go second half what are you most excited for now going through the latter half of the season
1: I mean there's so many stories that have uh, been developing going into the second half you've got uh, the National League West you got three teams out there that uh, are just killing it right now San Francisco Giants are kind of the uh, unlikely team at the top of that division uh, you got uh, MVP races with uh, Jacob deGrom and, and uh, Shohei Itani and, and what Vlad Guerrero is doing in Toronto. I mean, there's so many great stories uh, developing right now, and it's going to be fun to follow those with you on this podcast because uh, we can make some predictions now to see where it's going to end up, and then we can revisit that later on. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a very exciting second half. Careful what you wish for. I- I've learned the hard way that you
0: make some predictions. You might even forget that you made that prediction and then, a bunch of people will circle back and remind you, but no, it makes it it more fun because (laughs) the times you're right, you get to just bask in it, but the predictions, people love them. And we're definitely going to be doing that as the year goes on, especially as we get to the deadline, which I know we'll talk about more next week. I'm excited for everybody to hear some of your deadline stories Um, and just whether it was seeing teammates or yourself, uh, there's a lot of components that go into that. And you mentioned the storylines. This is our first full season back after no uh, full season in 2020 and a lot of teams are geared up. And I think there's a lot of parody in baseball this year, which is also really good, right? You look at the AL, is there a clear cut team that's really dominating? Not really, right? And you look at the national league, you would think the Dodgers, but they're banged up too. Would you say that it's kind of anybody's race on both sides of the league?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's always uh, that, that parody where you get uh, the teams are at the bottom of their divisions and they're not going to, they're out of the picture already, but <clears throat> we've got some, teams this year that are showing um, better this year than they ever have in a long time. Chicago, Chicago White Sox up on top of their division uh, in the American League, and they have some electric talent, and they're still going to get a few players back uh, for their second half run. Uh, you've got, you know, the Boston Red Sox who've been banged up a little bit. You know, it's kind of uh, unbelievable to, to know how they're doing it at this point because, you know, Chris Sale in their, in their starting rotation – uh, Tampa Bay Rays, they do it every single year with arguably the lowest payroll in the big leagues. Them and the athletics are, it's amazing what their formula is to how they create teams, how they put together their teams, and they're successful year after year after year. Because I would think more organizations would try to emulate what these guys are doing, try to duplicate that pattern of success because they're doing it with no money. And, you know, you got the big giant. Uh, behemoths of the New York Yankees are not having a great year. They're sitting in the, near the cellar of their division. Um, but Tampa Bay always figures it out. So a lot of great races, a lot of good teams uh, that we haven't seen in recent memory at the top of their divisions. Cincinnati's kind of a dark horse, too. They've got a phenomenal defense, I mean, uh, offensive team. Uh, do they have the pitching to uh get them into the wild card spot or first first place? Uh well, time will tell. I think the Reds are sneaky. That was a team I was going to ask you about because uh,
0: you you were briefly a Red, but that ballpark, it's a hitter's park, right? I mean, you look at the numbers. I think Nick Castellanos, I don't know exactly what it was, but at the time that I checked, he had 12 home runs. I know he has way more now, but he had 12 home runs. Ten of them were at home and two were on the road. He was still hitting well on the road, but it was all doubles. And that was kind of what we saw in the past. He was always more of a doubles guy. He always said in Detroit, that place was too big. He, he literally just went out and would roast Detroit sometimes that stadium in Comerica, but he's raking now at home. They are dominant offensively at home. Like you said, their pitching is is sneaky good. There's a couple little moving parts there, but like Wade Miley's weirdly been good. He threw a no hitter this year. Sonny Gray's healthy. Luis Castillo is looking like he's starting to come back into form a little bit. And they've got some prospects as well. But when I look at a team, I I look at all of the teams across the board, like you mentioned, you run through all of the storylines that are really interesting. And each team has their strengths, I feel like. And then each of them has their weakness. I would say that the White Sox are maybe one of the most complete teams when they're healthy. They've got the pitching, they've got the offense, they've got the athleticism and energy and things like that. But you look at some of these other teams, the Red Sox, you mentioned Chris Sale. He's coming back. And I think just the sight of him in the locker room is going to galvanize the team a little bit, even if he's not at 100%, even though he should be, but even if he's not pitching at his full 100% capability, what do you think the Red Sox need here? I mean, obviously it's pitching, but pitching's a commodity. They're still one of the best teams in baseball right now. Can they make something happen here? Like, Can you go through the postseason? Without having that dominant rotation, that's the thing that catches me a little bit off guard. They look like a regular season warrior type team rather than a team that can win a seven game series.
1: You basically need uh, three stud stars at the top of your rotation in order to be successful in the playoffs. That's all there is to it because um, you know it's such a short time frame, especially in the division series. You only got five games. You know you need that dominant pitching force because historically and always, good pitching will beat good hitting on a daily basis. So, you know, when I look back at our three or our two World Series teams, especially in, in 03, you got Josh Beckett, you got Brad Penny, you got Carl Pavano, you had Dontre Willis was coming out of the bullpen for us at that time because he had a ridiculous year, but the other three guys were better in the postseason than he was. So he was coming out of the bullpen for us. So we had three dominant starters in. we had three dominant starters in 97. We had Kevin Brown, we have Al Leiter, we have LaVon Hernandez who came out of nowhere uh, and I don't know if most people remember, but Alex Fernandez got hurt. He was one of our best pitchers the entire yeah. year. He had a, a shoulder problem late and was not able to pitch from the NLCS on. So, you know, it, it's all about the arms for me as far as postseason. So when you talk about a Chris Sale getting back into that locker room in Boston, they've had that much success without him. Now they get their their star back, their horse back, and they're thinking, "Whoa, look what that's going to do to us in the second half. It's going to propel us a little bit. Gives us a lot more confidence." But you know, the flip side, when you've got the trade deadline coming up August 30 or uh, July 31st, a lot of teams are going to be reluctant to trade pitching to the Boston Red Sox because yeah. that's going to make them a dominant team. Why would yeah. we want to do that? And they're going to be asking a lot in return. So I don't know if the pieces are going to be uh, worth the squeeze, so to speak. They're not going to, to get a frontline starter going in the second half of this year for some of these teams. It's going to cost them a lot.
0: And, you know, my forte is the farm systems and the Red Sox are not near the top of the league in farm systems. They've got some good players, but they would deplete themselves. So it's going to be a really interesting spot there. And I think you bring up a good point. And I got so excited about the storylines, I forgot to talk about the jersey. So we got to guess what the jersey is. It's a San Diego Padres throwback. I'm going to go with Tony Gwynn. Because he just rocks and he seems like the kind of guy that you would definitely align well with. And he was an awesome dude. So Tony Gwynn's my guess.
1: Good guess. Good guess. And I almost went with that one, but
0: I was so sure of that one. Even your face, you you made it look like I was right. Okay. So it's not
1: that same timeline. Same timeline, maybe a little bit. Yeah, early, early Tony Gwynn. Obviously, with the throwback, they wore these ugly jerseys. You know, got the brown with the yellow on. But uh, yeah,
0: I feel like brown and yellow can't—they can't go together. That's not. Right.
1: That's not this really, was a career Padre, either. This guy went to multiple organizations. He's on the Hall of Fame. Trevor Hoffman, no. God, um, he's in the Hall of Fame. Yep. Padre in the Hall of Fame, and most people wouldn't think that. I don't even know if he went into the Hall of Fame as a Padre. Oh, wow. Yeah. That might be, you're, you're giving me a good one here. Then
0: didn't go in yeah. Hall of Fame as a Padre bounced around. It's not Hoffman. It's not Gwynn. Uh, but that's cool that you do have a Gwynn. I got, was able to get that out of you. So next time I see a Padres, jersey,
1: I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, that's a dead giveaway. Next. Yeah. Time. So now you're
0: going to have to sit on that one for like a year. Uh, <laughs> I got nothing position. Give me position. And then I'll, and I'll throw outfielder. Out.
1: outfielder. He was drafted in three sports.
0: I thought that was Tony Quinn. <laughs> Was Tony Gwynn not a three-sport athlete?
1: Oh, it was Dave
0: Winfield. That—that's cool, though. That's actually one of the coolest. It's a good
1: games. one. It's got a good story to it too. Because when I first got called up uh, with the Kansas City Royals, uh, he was playing for the Cleveland Indians at the time, and he gets to first base. I'm playing first base. The man was massive. He's six foot six and just an imposing presence on the field. Uh, he gets to first base, and I'm standing next to the Dave Winfield. You know, so I'm like. Kind of like just side eyeing him a little bit. And he's like, Hey man, what's up? How you doing? He's like, I'm like, Oh God, he's talking to me. I'm doing great. And then there was a pitching change. So he's just sitting there. He goes, so man, first time called up. I'm like, yeah, this is my first time up. And uh, I was just kind of, you know, relishing that moment with him. He's like, you give me some advice. He goes, never, ever stop learning about this game. He goes, I've been in this game 20 plus years and I have never stopped learning. I always watch uh, videos. I'm always willing to make adjustments. He said, if you want to stay here, be willing to make adjustments all the time uh, as a hitter. So I'm like, wow, that was just a cool conversation I had with Mr. Dave Winfield when I first got called up for the Royals at first base uh, in Royal stadium, Kauffman stadium. And that's the advice. It's funny because I'm sure
0: this was part of the reason why you, in the first episode, you said, I saw something new every single time I was out on the field. And you mentioned the pickoff throw over that went into the stands. And obviously there's not too much to learn from that instance, but it is kind of tying into that same notion that the game is always teaching you something. And uh, I'm sure to hear that,
1: how often did you kind of have that resonate in your head and throughout your baseball career? Constantly, constantly, constantly. I just, uh, you know, I was a hard worker anyway, but when you've got a guy like that, tell you something like that. And you say, you start looking at the talented players, the greatest players in this game. Uh, You mentioned Tony Gwynn. I remember Tony Gwynn in my second All-Star game. Back then he hooked up like a little tiny video eight player. He's taping his at-bats in the All-Star game. We're talking about meaningless at-bats. He himself was putting his little video player into the TV the inputs on the back of the outputs on the back of the TV. So he could record his own at bats in the all-star game. So he could watch them back later. This guy was always, always on top of his game, always making adjustments because they were trying to make adjustments to him. And I realized that not only are these guys, the most talented players in the world, they also work the hardest. And over my career, I saw some guys that were phenomenally ultra talented, but they didn't work hard or they worked hard at the, at the beginning and just wanted to let their talent coast them through at the end. And they were gone. The guys that worked the hardest, the longest, those are the guys at stake. And it's, there's just no way around it. A
0: hundred percent. And I think we even see that today, especially with pitchers. Uh, I, I think there's been some storylines with certain pitchers. The things you have to do to prevent injury, to stay healthy, these guys have to really, really grind. I remember Jose Fernandez. How far did he used to bike? Do, do you remember?
1: He used to bike like hundreds of miles on the stationary bike, right? Just to stay. Oh, he got in, he got into cycling on the road. You know, he even oh, wow. had a tattoo of a of a pedal and a cog on his calf, um, you know, one off season because he got so into it and he'd go out on the road on his road bike, which obviously the Marlins weren't too happy about because of the injury risk, but he'd bike 40, 50 miles uh, at a time. He got really into it. He lost a lot of weight, got more fit. And, uh, that's a guy that just, he never stopped wanting to learn. He never stopped, you know, such a tragic loss because of, you know, to see where this guy would have gone with his career and talk about just a joy of baseball and the love of the game. Uh, I don't think I've seen that at a young player, maybe in my career is how much he loved this game. So we were actually just talking about Jose
0: uh, recently when we were at the all-star game. Cause obviously, I mean, he, he should be there. He would be there. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind. And we were looking at just his pitches that the breaking ball, that was just otherworldly, the fastball that was electric, but also beyond, beyond that, just what he brought to the table as, as a personality, what, how good do you think he would have been when it was all said and done? I mean, we're talking probably hall of fame. Like I know what you have to do it for a long time, but based on the skills that he had based on everything that he had going for him, you know, what do you think he could have done? Uh, when, when it was all said and done?
1: Well, obviously when you look at a pitcher's longevity, you got to look at the health of their arm and would he have stayed healthy first and foremost. And if that happens, uh, you got a guy that has, like you said, um, each one of his pitches would probably rank in the top three in the league. As far as if you were to ask the players, rate the best fastball, rate the best curveball, rate the best changeup. Jose Fernandez would have been probably in the top five of all three of those pitches, but he had that X factor of this uh, air of confidence and uh, invincibility on the mound that bordered on um, cocky, but he was humble. You know, he's a humble kid. They bordered on cocky. If you got him, Hey man, he'd tip your hat to hit a home run. He'd tip your hat. But if he got you, he'd do the same thing to you. So, you know, it, it was a, a game for him. Um, yes. Baseball was a game, but it was a game as far as a cat and mouse with the hitter. He wanted that competition. He loved that competition more than anything. And I do believe, you know, we saw him put up uh, other worldly numbers when he was, Uh, pitching. I think that would have continued on and he would have gotten even better. So we're talking a perennial uh, top three, top five, Cy Young uh, in the mix every single year. And, you know, uh, you know, we could talk about it and and, uh, it's nice to visualize what it could have, what could have been, but um, unfortunately we won't get to see that.
0: Yeah. I mean, there was a reason why there was about 20% more fans in the stadium every single time that guy pitched. It was, just an electric atmosphere to watch him pitch. And they would call it Jose day for a reason, but going back to what you were saying about just heeding advice from a veteran, you became that veteran 17 years later, but even before that, maybe 13, 14 years, you were playing several seasons, whether it was with the Marlins, the Mets, the Reds, wherever it was where I'm sure players were coming to you for advice as an all-star, as a champion, as a guy that's been around for a while. You mentioned what Dave Winfield said to you, what was one of the main things that you would say to somebody if they just asked you a general question of you know, what you've learned from the game or what they need to do to get to where you are or last as long as you did in the big leagues?
1: Well, uh, you know, first and foremost, you cannot replace hard work. You know, you, you have to practice your craft, especially this craft, every single day uh, that you're in the big leagues. You got to appreciate that you're there, appreciate that you're one of 750 people on the planet at that time that can do what you're doing. And to be able to stay there long term, you have to constantly work at it, both mentally and physically. So that's one of the biggest things. I remember, uh, you know, my first spring training with the Reds, my only spring training with the Reds, uh, we had Josh Hamilton. Josh Hamilton was uh, had just come off the uh, rule five draft and it was going to be his first time in professional baseball in, he hadn't seen a pitch I think in three years or something crazy like that. And I remember taking early batting practice with him and he had not taken, this is like the first, his first workout that we'd had. And he's hitting balls over the batter's eye in center field, like flipping them out there like crazy. This guy was a physical imposing guy that was ultra talented. I don't know if you ever read his book, but his book is, is unbelievable what his life was like uh, early on. He was a seven-year-old playing with 12-year-olds. I mean, he's the probably the greatest talent, baseball talent, maybe this world has ever seen. And it's uh, unfortunate what happened to him and a spiral down with uh, the bad side of, of life that he got involved with. But the short time that we got to see him play, man, it was electric. So, you know, we had a good conversation before opening day. He was nervous. And, you know, I told him uh, what George Brett told me. He's like, listen, dude, I put my pants on just like you do just like every other 24 of the other guys on this team, 25 on the other side, they're going to put their pants on, put their uniform on, dress like a big leaguer, they're going to go out between those lines and play the game that they played their entire life. And you can't view it any other way than that because once you start going outside those lines and thinking about fans and uh, opening day and stuff you've done in the past, and it just affects what you do in between the lines. And so, um, you know, he took that to... Advice, and I think I even mentioned me in my book, in his book, because of oh, wow. uh, that, that advice I gave him that opening day. Oh, that's actually crazy. That's on the top of my list of of books to read. And
0: yeah, he was the first overall pick in 1999 by the Rays. And obviously it was a long road to get to the big leagues and iron things out uh, in his personal life. But he had a great year right away. And I don't think people remember, sometimes it's easy to forget how dominant he was when he was healthy and when he was able to just consistently focus on baseball. That 2010 season when he wins the MVP, 359 batting average 633 slugging he had 32 bombs and 100 driven in I mean you don't see power hitters hitting 360 I mean this was only 11 years ago this is just incredible stuff from him and it's a shame because I remember going to see him play Um, my dad and I went to the all-star game right around that time and that was the guy I was most excited to see hit it was Josh Hamilton and it was just incredible to see how Easy, his swing was how effortless it was for him to generate that power, and just so sweet from the left side. Uh, I really like to highlight players like that, where because their career was a bit short, it's easy to forget how dominant they were in a short spurt like you mentioned with somebody like Albert Bell who was even on just a different level of dominance for that spurt but i wanted to talk now back into the modern game and like what's going on right now because we tease some of these ideas and tease some of these storylines that we have going right now through baseball and There are some things that you need to have to be able to go deep into the postseason. You mentioned the pitching, and that's something that's really important as well. But what about a team on the other side of the spectrum? A team that has the pitching, but maybe some questions around the offense. The team that comes to mind is the Milwaukee Brewers. They were red hot through the first half of the season, uh, especially as we got closer to the all-star break. Their offense has not been good. Yelich has been banged up, not really playing at 100%, probably still coming back. We know back back issues can be really persistent, and we know what he's capable of when he's healthy. But right now they're winning despite him not really playing at a Christian Yelich level. The rest of that offense is... Not very uh, imposing, but they have a great trio of pitchers and a bunch of unsung guys that are really establishing themselves. Corbin Burns, who throws 96 mile an hour cutters. Brandon Woodruff, who throws five pitches that go in five different directions. And then Freddie Peralta, who's one of my favorite emergent starters that has just a wipeout slider. And all three of those guys have been fantastic. That's the three pitchers that you mentioned. Those are three arms that can get you through the postseason, no doubt in my mind. But that offense It's not quite as good as maybe some of these other playoff teams. That's lesser of a concern, right? But can you win with a meager to below average offense?
1: You can, but it puts a lot of pressure on those pitchers to have to perform every single night because they know they're not going to get a whole lot of run support. So uh, they might get a little more extended uh, as far as health is concerned going in late in the September and, you know, the back end of that bullpen too, uh, these hater, you got hater closing out games. Uh, he's a lot, you know, a, a lockdown when it comes to the ninth inning, but with the brewers, I think, you know, they're going to get something started offensively. They're going to come back a little bit. Christian Yelich is having a, a subpar year. Like you said, he's been banged up a little bit. I expect him to get healthy and kind of be the catalyst for them to really start uh, doing something big offensive wise. But when you look at their team in total, they're not going to be that, that, team that's going to score a bunch of runs. They're not going to put 10 up uh, on a, a night uh, very often. They're not going to put big numbers up to keep that, uh, you know, give the uh, pitching staff a, a night off, so to speak. Uh, so these guys have to battle every single night. But like you said, they got three studs going into the postseason if they make it that far. And then all bets are off. I mean, that's where one run can win a game. Two runs can win a game. Um, and, you know, uh, they're an interesting case. That's going to be an interesting team to follow. I'm really curious. And the thing that we mentioned earlier, though,
0: is for the Red Sox, the price tag for a starting pitcher, incredibly high. For the Brewers, the price tag for maybe a corner infielder might not be as high. So you might be able to go get a bat or two to help you or a corner outfielder. So that should be interesting. Also, Lorenzo Cain, hopefully coming back and being healthy can help them a little bit as well. But that's going to be a team that's fun to watch. And Yelich was a guy, obviously, with the Marlins, you you were close to seeing him when you were um, you know working in the Marlins front office as an advisor. And you got to see Yelich really come up. And it seemed like everybody was on the same page about Christian Yelich, that this guy is good right now, but he is on the verge of becoming great. And it was almost like we were expecting it to happen. It would be delayed another year. He'd be a little bit better. And then it was delayed another year where he was a little bit better. And then the trade happens. He goes to a hitter's park. He starts to have some things click for him and he explodes. I mean, he wins the MVP. He would have won the MVP again if he didn't break his, he, I think he fractured his kneecap missed the last 30 games and just was edged out. Uh, This was somebody that turned into for that span and he could get back to that. People were saying it was him and trout in terms of the most productive players in the game at that point. Uh, Were you surprised at all to see that, to see him become that good? I know everybody was saying this guy could be an all-star, but did you ever expect basically back-to-back MVP caliber from Christian Yelich after seeing him
1: closely for so many years? No, because I, I I didn't I didn't foresee the power component. Um, you know, I knew uh, for me he was going to be a twenty home run guy, high average, uh, pretty good doubles production, runs the base as well, going to steal a few bags for you. But the power production for me is what really became alarming because he's got one of the sweetest swings in the game, and when you look at how his swing has evolved it really hasn't changed that much from where he was with the Marlins to where it is now. I think he just started getting more confidence because when you talk to Christian Yelich, he's one of the most humble guys that you're ever going to talk to. You know, I'd go out there in the outfield and shag with him sometimes and, and we just talk shop or talk hitting like that. And, you know, he just, he was a super humble guy. So there's another thing that a lot of times you'll find the MVPs, the guys that win the MVP are super confident, beat their own chest. You know, they kind of, uh, are boisterous and, and outspoken. And Christian Yelich was the exact opposite of that. He was humble. He was uh, shy. He was almost like, um, couldn't believe that he was getting all the attention he was getting with the Marlins. You know, he said, I, he goes, Niner, I didn't make my high school team when I first went out for my high school team. And now here he is, you know, uh, a superstar, So I always liked that about him. He's always one of my favorite uh, young players uh, that we had drafted for the Marlins and came up through our system and love watching him play. And it was, uh, I still text him every once in a while when he, he does something out of the ordinary. Well, I doubt you texted him after this one, because he did something out of the ordinary
0: recently, but it's one of the weirder rules in baseball. I don't know if you saw this, but he, he ran up the line on a ground ball and this was a few days ago, right before the all-star break. And it was thrown away and it bounced right back. So it was close to, First base area, but he took a half a jab step to second base, but then kind of played it off like he was walking back to first. And Jonathan India just slapped a tag on him and they called him out. It was objectively the right call, but I also fully understand Christian Yelich's frustration there. He took that half a jab step. And he lost it. You don't see Yelich lose his school yeah. very often. Like you do ever, not see him. Ever. 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 <laughs> ever. So I was like, holy crap, that's Christian Yelich losing his school like that. But he lost it. And I'm sure a little bit of it is the frustration uh, with, with what's going on with him. But first of all, what do you think of that rule? Like you take a jab step and now you're all automatically a runner in, in play. Yeah, I,
1: I get the, the rule is if you make a concerted effort to advance to the next base, you know, on an overthrow – and you decide not to, then you're a live player, you know, you're, you're, but a situation like that, I mean, come on, he definitely was not trying to go to second base. He just kind of looked at it because he lost sight of the ball for a second. And when he picked it back up, he just literally was, like you said, it was a six inch veer off of course, which is dumb. Another dumb rule that I think that they should change is that whole running in the baseline rule. The, the, the base is in fair territory, but they want you to run in foul territory and then touch the base in fair territory at the very end. So as a first baseman, I always told pitchers, if there was a bunt up the line, I said, just drill the guy in the back. If you think you're not going to get him, just drill him in the back. They're going to call interference every single time because their feet are going to be on the field, which is the stupidest rule ever. I mean, I get it. If they're both, if both feet are on the field and they're on the grass, which I've seen some guys on the grass and you try to throw around them and they pitcher end up throwing it away. But some guys are like on the dirt, and one straddling the line, and they will call you out on that for interference. Well, you remember the World Series, or it was the postseason. I don't
0: know. I remember if it was in the World Series or not, but Trey Turner. It's exactly what happened. He was running on the line. I didn't understand that call. It made no sense to me. Uh, that's one of those that's, that's really wacky as well. Uh, and one of the other like weird temporary baseball rules that I always remember is the play at the plate when they had just started to try to get rid of the collisions at home. And they wanted to protect catchers and that Stanton throw to home. And I forget who was running home from third, but the guy was out by about
1: 30 to 35 feet. I was covering the team uh, for Fox at that time. So we had to do this play in the post game show. And it was oh my gosh, so like that, for example,
0: like, and I remember <laughs> I can hear Tommy Hutton's voice clear as day. He's just like, remember this day, this is a day that baseball basically just stepped on its own feet. And it was one of the, I was at that game. It was one of the wildest things I've ever seen. Uh, how do you navigate that? Like you have these rules, they're, somewhat enforced, but then you call to New York and then New York has whatever New York is. I I don't know what that is. And I've said, I I have a theory because they've gone to review and still gotten the calls wrong. I have a theory. It's just like an intern in a little closet. that's just watching on a bunch of little like monitors. But with that whole system, would you almost rather just have no replay than to have this whole replay system? And then they still might get it wrong because it has to be conclusive or to overturn it.
1: You know, they've, they've gone, you know, this all came about because the uh, the play in the, in the postseason that one time, I can't remember, I think it was with the Angels or something like that, that there was a play that was obviously uh, the wrong call, and it made a huge impact on that game. So everyone was this groundswell of uh, emotion about let's get replay in there to make it right, to get these calls right. And like you said, sometimes even with replay, they're still not getting them right. And they're adding on minutes and minutes to every exactly. game, which their entire world – in the last 10 years has been, let's make the game shorter. Let's make the game shorter. Let's make the game shorter. And this is only length in the process. So now you're getting, uh, I don't know how many challenges they get per game, you know, before the seventh inning and after the seventh inning, but you're adding on 10, 10 minutes per game, just in replays. And I remember when that first came out, they couldn't get it right. They're, they're, they're taking five minutes on an obvious call. That was it like bang, bang. Happens. I'm like, oh my God, I can see it right now in the first replay. You don't have to look at it from 10 different angles. We saw it on the first one. Let's get it going right now. But they stayed there in three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. So I get, you know, I don't get it actually because <laughs> I don't get it because they're changing all these rules, which is effectively changing the game. The game that I love, the game that we love growing up, you, you know, the game is a certain way. And now all these rules are coming in that it changes the actual game, but their end goal of making games faster is not working. They're still long. They're still the exact same time. They
0: micromanage, right? All of these little things that maybe shave off a minute, two minutes, whatever it may be in the game. And then one replay upends all of that. So it's, what are we, what are we achieving here? And, And that's the thing too, is I feel like if you're somebody who is really, if 10 minutes or even 15 minutes in length of a baseball game is a deal breaker for you, then MLB shouldn't even be going after those people anyways. (laughs) Like those are not people that you're going to get coming in all the time, watching all the games. If 15 minutes is a deal breaker for somebody, then that they're just not going to like baseball. It's just, that is what it is. And I've always found it interesting that they've found it more important to try to appeal to that mystery person. I don't even know if that person exists, that mystery person that thinks, 15 minutes shorter on a baseball game, even 30 minutes shorter on a baseball game will make them watch it rather than the traditional fans and the people that have been there forever that love a lot of the details of the game. That's where it's always interesting to me because you have your core, you have a good base and you have a lot of people there. And that's going to kind of segue me into the, the next topic, which is, you know, people have been very critical of baseball for not marketing its stars properly, and I think that you can you can definitely make that point. Uh, you also can make the point that baseball hasn't quite had that transcendent star like Ken Griffey Jr., like Derek Cheater uh, in a while. I love Mike Trout. He he is awesome, and he does all of the things that you would want to see from a big leaguer, and whether whether it's on or off the field. But Mike Trout doesn't want to be that big showy guy, and I respect that about him. But that was probably the only guy that you could put in that you know, echelon in terms of just how marketable he could be. Now we have guys that might be breaking through that. I mean, it's really early, and I'm not gonna compare Fernando Tatis to Derek Jeter, but when it comes to the the iconic type of persona that he has at a young age. This is something I feel like we haven't seen in a while. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know it might be it might be a little bit of recency bias for me uh, seeing I didn't see Jeter come up necessarily. I obviously saw him play through the latter half of his career. Uh, But do you think that Fernando Tatis now and some of these other young players, they obviously have to do it for a while before we put them in the same conversation as them. But in terms of marketability and in terms of excitement and
1: baseball, are, are these guys something we haven't seen in a while? Definitely. I mean, you're talking, you know, Fernando Tatis and Vlad Jr. and and uh, Bo Bichette and you know these young superstars that are kind of this generation's players. So you know the the kids now that are on TikTok and Instagram and um, these platforms that that these stars can really spread their personality around and make a brand for themselves. They take advantage of that. So you know back when we didn't have computers or or cell phones or anything, you kind of, it was all on the team themselves to kind of market you and get your name out there and put your name in the paper and do ad campaigns for products and things like that. Now <clears throat> these guys can spread out their personalities to the entire world at the click of a button on their phone, you know, they're they're posting these things and uh, there's a lot of excitement around these young players. Fernando Tatis is one of the most dynamic players we've seen in a long time. He might be the first 40 40-40 player we've seen in 20 some years. You know, we're, we're talking going back to Barry Bonds and uh, Jose Canseco early on when they're hitting 40 home runs phenomenal power, but also phenomenal speed, uh, at a premium position at a shortstop position too. So, uh, this guy is, uh, quite a, a, uh, a marketer's dream. I would think that, you know, we start seeing him all put pitching all kinds of products. The only problem is with the equipment side of it, you know, most people don't play baseball. So you can't really, uh, you know, basketball shoes, you notice a basketball shoe. There's 5 million pairs of basketball shoes flying off the shelves because, everybody can play basketball well you know mike trout or uh fernando tatis whatever shoe they brand they wear people aren't flocking to the dicks to buy their cleats because yeah. people don't buy cleats uh, and that's always hurt uh, marketing and for baseball especially off the field they don't make as much nearly as much as the football and basketball guys of the world but um you know what and i've changed a little bit because <laughs> I like Mike Trout. I think uh, he's the greatest player I've seen in this game. And I like his personality. I like the way he conducts himself. But like you said, he doesn't like the spotlight. He doesn't want to be the guy. He doesn't want to be out there in front of the media every single time. And as is his right. And I respect that. I respect that. Um, and that was the way I was. I didn't, I didn't want to be like that. But – And when you saw a player like Tatis on the other side, you're like, ah, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But no, this guy's uh, he's passionate about the game. Um, You know, I played against his dad, so I know he's got some good uh, genes and and good coaching and good um, values mixed in there as well. But he's this generation of exciting players that I think they're just going to they're letting themselves out there, personality and and, uh, talent wise. And I love you that you brought up the uh, the Griffey thing, or
0: that you brought up the shoes thing, because Griffey was the one guy that was transcendent in the sneaker game, and that was what was really cool, and why he was so big for baseball is that. People were rocking those Griffey shoes. I mean, those were popular, being sold at the basketball King section. Man, yep, yep. And, and I mean, that was what was so huge for him. And I'm hoping that you know we'll see somebody like that. I mean, you know, you never know. Tatis, I could see Tatis getting a Jordan deal and something like that happening as well. And uh, the fact that that's even feasible now is amazing. And when I was at the Derby. That was another thing we, we saw uh, Ken Griffey Jr. handing over the trophy to Pete Alonso and just something about Griffey. Just uh, he was always one of my favorite players. And even though I didn't get to see him at his peak, I would go back, watch at bats, watch games. And uh, just the way he played, the swing, everything. Right. Uh, do you have any experience of just uh, having some crossover with Griffey, of course, and anything that stood out to you from him uh, in terms of what he was able to do on the field when he was on the
1: field? Yeah, he was my teammate. He was my teammate with the Reds my last year of my career. And, you know, that was one of my uh, most exciting times when I signed with the Reds, knowing that I was going to get to play with Ken Griffey Jr. in his last year. Um, But I played against him uh, when I was early in the American League as well. And you talk about a player that could just absolutely take over a ballgame and win it by himself. Ken Griffey Jr. was that guy. You know, we played against him in the old uh, Seattle Kingdom. And he did things that you just did not see from other players, the way he played center field with reckless abandon and made the most phenomenal catches. And, you know, the talk about the power with the average and uh, the speed. I mean, this guy could do it all. He was that prototypical five tool player and he just exuded that, that happiness of being in competition and being a ball player. And I don't think I've ever seen anybody on a field as happy as him, you know, as, as far as just enjoying, enjoying the moment every, every single night. And if he stayed healthy, if he
0: avoided all those injuries, how many home runs do you think he finishes with?
1: He's in the 700s for sure. Uh, you know, you're talking about a guy with a swing, even in batting practice, my last week with the Reds, that swing is so iconic and so fluid. And you, know, you talk about launch angle and all that, his, swing was made for home runs and he, to the last day that I saw him hit, this guy could hit the ball out of any part of that ballpark whenever he wanted to, man. It was fun to watch. Well, someone that's hitting it out of the ballpark anytime he
0: wants to right now is Shohei Ohtani and he's on pace for 60 home runs. Whether he gets there, we'll we'll see. I mean, we've talked about some crazy first halves and it's hard to sustain some things. But right now, Otani, if we're looking at betting odds just in terms of just how to get an idea of how heavily someone is favored over somebody else, Otani is minus 350, which means you got to lay down 35 to win 10. That's a really heavy favorite this early in the season. Then on the other side of things in the NL, you've got. DeGrom at minus 110, which is still pretty heavy favorite. And then you also have Tatis at plus 120. So both those guys are at about even odds. You bet 10, you win 10, basically. Both of those guys have a really good shot, obviously. When you look at the AL, the only guy that can catch, feasibly catch Shohei Otani is Vlad Guerrero Jr. Let's start with the AL because... Otani obviously is if you strike out 200 guys hit 60 home runs and steal 25 bases, that's going to be the single greatest season in baseball history. Nobody's touching that, but let's say he gets more into the 45 to 50 home run range. He strikes out 150 and he, you know, is, is a little bit more tempered down, but still has a spectacular year. Let's say Vlad Guerrero jr. Wins the triple crown. I know we're getting crazy here, but Who wins at that point? Otani still has high marks in all three categories, pitching, base, running, hitting, and you have a triple crown from Vlad Jr. How do you pick that?
1: That's a tough one. Uh, Not many triple crowns uh, have been won um, in the history of the game. Matter of fact, I've got a baseball over here that has every triple crown winner on it. Wow! Um, So when Miguel Cabrera came to town uh, after he won the triple crown with the Detroit Tigers, I had him put his name alongside Carl Yastrzemski, Frank Robinson, uh, Mickey Mantle, and Ted Williams. So that's a pretty special baseball. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But um, so that's a that's an historic season, but it's look what Otani's doing as far as making history. He's writing history right now. Something that has never been done since Babe Ruth. I mean, Babe Ruth, most people don't remember, was a pitcher as well as as a hitter when he was with the Boston Red Sox. So you're seeing a guy come over and dominate both sides of the ball like it's never been done before and you know i don't know if otani's going to be able to keep up this pace for the entire season you saw him at the home run derby you know show that hint of nerves that nervousness yeah. that that comes with being in the spotlight so long so it'll be interesting to see how he handles that as the season progresses because more and more talk's going to be laid on him about the historic season he's having and the interview requests, I'm sure are going to become uh, unbelievable for that. Uh, But then on the other side, you got Vlad Garot Jr. who's only 22 years old. How is he going to react to the same type of pressure, the same type of uh, attention? I think when you look at him and the way he holds himself in an all-star game I don't think he's going to have much problem uh, taking on all that because that's just him. He's a supremely confident individual. He's got a big league dad to uh, rely on to kind of guide him through that process mentally of how, uh, you know, they call it the dog days of August for a reason, you know, and you get, and he went through that. Remember Uh, his last full season, in the big leagues, he had 15 home runs very early on, and he did not hit another one for about the last two months. Yeah. So he knows what it's like to struggle late in the season. And uh, he's got, he, he got
0: into really good shape because of that. And and I think that's a big reason why he, he's doing what he's doing. he'll even tell you that, you know, he, he lost a lot of weight. He, he got into better, you know, just cardio cardiovascular shape in, t- in terms of just his endurance and everything like that. And you're seeing it. He's moving better. He's swinging better. It's, it's all great. And uh, again, 22 years old, it's, it's hard to believe, uh, but it seems like Otani that, with with what he's doing in terms of writing, you know, writing history potentially, it's going to be too hard to, to up somebody like that. But on the other side, and you have Fernando Tatis Jr., when you mentioned he could be 40-40. But then you also have Jacob deGrom, who you look at the numbers, he's right on par with any season we've ever seen, ever. But Bob Costas, who was just on the Just Baseball show, brought up a really good point. And, and he said, not to slight anything that Jacob deGrom's doing. What he's doing is absolutely incredible. To compare it to maybe a Bob Gibson season or uh, to a Doc Gooden, it's, it, you're, you're comparing apples to oranges because deGrom will go five, six innings. That's what today's game is, right? But Doc Gooden and, and Gibson, they were going 8-9, right? And, and that's the difference. So the ERA is, is going to be a little bit skewed. At that same notion, if DeGrom, if you let DeGrom go out there in, in a playoff game, he'll go 11 innings until his arm falls off. I have no doubt about that. But it's just the way that the game is nowadays. So how do you compare that across eras? What What are your thoughts in that regard? Because, yes, there's there's still the same aspect of you're 60 feet, six inches away. It's the same mound. Strike zone's roughly the same. But to compare DeGrom in this game where you're only going five or six to – what was going on back then. You know, how does that, how does that even work? Because baseball is predicated on comparing errors.
1: Right. And of course you're going to do that because of the stats It's a stat driven game. And you look at the end season, any stats, you're going to compare yourself to everybody in history that's come before you. But you made a great point is that, you know, they had four man rotations back then they didn't have five man rotations. Uh, They didn't have the specialized bullpens. They didn't have closers. So when you look at, Bob Gibson's 1.12 ERA season, I think he threw about 340 innings that season. 340 innings, which DeGrom, as great as he is... He might get half that. He has a phenomenal year, he might have 200. He might have 215, you know? So you're talking another two months of a season that DeGrom would have to pitch just to equal what Bob Gibson did as far as innings pitched, which means pitches thrown. And he still did it over that long a time. And a 1.12 ERA is... I mean, he changed the game. They changed the mound because of him, because he was yeah. so dominant. Yeah, that's a good that's point. saying something right there. I mentioned the 60 feet, 6 inches. It actually wasn't true with him because they changed it after that season for him, right? Or I lowered the mound after that season that he had. Right? Yeah. Because so dominant, they made it lower. So you didn't have, the pitchers didn't have as much angle coming down at the hitter. They couldn't push off quite as much, but... Bob Gibson changed the game just by his performance. That's how dominant he was. And you look at Tatis, who, um, you know, is going to put up a monster season. And you know, my feelings on a pitcher winning MVP, they've got their MVP. That's a Cy Young. All right. And he affects 34 games a year, even if he's a 17 game winner, 16 game winner. um, Then you, you're going to go to the stat where how many, how many games did the team win when he started? you know, and that effect on his team's uh, success. But Tatis at a premium position, shortstop, putting up the numbers he's putting up, we're talking he could have a historic season of 40, 40 plus. Um, and I think DeGrom's going to have tough time. You've seen his ERA double in the last three weeks, which is went from 0.5 to, to 1.06, what it is now. I think you're going to find him uh, hard to keep that ERA down to a Bob Gibson level throughout the season. Uh, absolutely. And there's one, two bad start, one bad start. You're done. He's a hundred percent,
0: especially when you're only going five, six innings. And I, I know DeGrom goes deep; he, he does go, go those complete games as well, but it's not every day out. Like it was back in the day. And, and it's just the way it is now. Does it help to case at all that? He's hitting three sixty four?
1: Oh, I did not know that. All right. Well, that's pretty special, <laughs> but no how insane is that <laughs> how he's 12 for
0: 33 uh, with six driven in I, wow. I just I, that, that is the part that blows my mind he's he's a two oh four career hitter, but for some reason this year it's just clicking offensively it's outrageous, but then you look at the tatis side, and one of the biggest criticisms on Tatis is the defense and to me if you 're 40-40, i don't really give a crap about your defense uh, obviously <laughs> obviously it matters, but you know we have we live in an era where you have a lot of these metrically based people that use that to discredit Derek Jeter's defense, right? That look at, that look at Tatis and say, Oh, Oh, you'll love this. Probably. It probably affects his war. I'm sure it affects his war. So when you look at things like that, yes, you have to consider defense of course, because it's a big part of the game in a premium position, but is that something that could be, let's say it's neck and neck with DeGrom. Is it fair to let defense be what, what holds him back? If he's a
1: 40, 40 guy. It never has been. It never has been. When you look at MVP, they look at, they specifically look at offensive numbers. They're not going to say he made 12 errors on defense or whatever. No, they're going to look at his offensive production, especially if he's uh, leading in stolen bases as well. That's all they'll focus on. They're not going to say, oh, he was a subpar defender. There's no chance of that, I don't think. And when you talk about that and this whole shortstop thing, you know, I played with one of the greatest shortstops that I've ever played with, Mike Bordick. So he had a season in 2001 that is second to none. Like literally second to none. He made an error in May, <clears throat> May, whatever it was. He did not make another error for the rest of the season and set records for wow. most consecutive games, errorless games, most chances held without, or most chances without an error. This guy said, right, he sent, and then went in went 110 games without making an error at shortstop playing every day. He did not win the gold glove that year. He did not win the gold glove that the year. How is what, that even? What is it based on? on? Well, it's Omar Viscale won the gold glove. He made 13 errors that year. 13. And yeah, Omar Viscale's flashier and, you know, makes these spectacular plays. But Mike Bordick was a blue collar shortstop that made every single play hit to him. And you're telling me that with a 999 feeling percentage, setting major league records for both feeling percentage, errorless games, chances, uh, chances uh, attempted, did not win the gold glove that's one of the biggest travesties i've ever seen in in baseball so
0: we're working on it for just baseball.com like we're working on a player evaluation tool because we want to just make it just for fun just like a qbr type of tool but it's impossible to be able to quantify and synthesize fielding stats i just feel like especially in the era of shifting that's why i think the gold glove award is is also always just so unpredictable it's really hard i understand i think the finalists are always usually pretty on par but then how you pick from those guys I never understood that so an interesting point here I'm I'm I don't have the exact numbers in front of me but somebody this group of friends they placed a bet going into this year was $400 a parlay of Shohei Ohtani to win the MVP and Jacob deGrom to win the MVP that parlay pays 450 roughly $1000 wow. they were offered they were offered one hundred and ninety thousand dollars to sell the ticket. They're right still
1: thinking about it. Right now, I'd give it up. Right now, I would give it up in two seconds. Correct. One, one second. No, nope. won't even take me two seconds. One second. <laughs> I'm giving that up. But because Shohei's probably going to win it, right? And Degrom has a great shot, but, but it's, it's one injury. It's it's you anything. no. Yeah. Otani's been hurt in the past too. What if he gets hurt? He blows out his elbow or something. Uh, you know, pitching or turns an ankle or gets hit on the hand by a pitch. I mean, you just you can't. It's so random in baseball. You cannot. I would give that ticket up so fast and go straight to the <laughs> what's, bank. What's what's bottom dollar you're taking for that ticket? Well, if I'm offered a hundred, if I'm offered six figures, buy it's well, you're asking what's the bottom level I would take. Yeah. Um well, if it's right now what 450, you said? Yeah, if, roughly 400, 450. I'd take 25% of that. Yeah, I would too. And I
0: would run. Yeah. Straight to run. the bank. <laughs> but people are greedy. You know, like deal or no deal. It's kind of like that. Yeah, exactly. And people will always turn it down, turn it down. They think they've got the million-dollar case and odds are stacked against you. But a great bet no matter what. I mean, that was pretty crazy. So the prediction. The
1: prediction. But, you know, we go back to this gold glove thing too, which has always been, I think. It's true. Hey, Omar Vizcal won it every year. Some guys don't even look at the stats. It's like, yep, he deserves it again. Vizquel. this year, Vizquel. Uh Rafael Palmeira won gold glove at first base and he only played 50 games that year. Stop it. He's DH mostly. He, he played 50 games in the field and they gave him the gold glove. What, what was the rationale? Just my point is, oh, he's a good first baseman. He played first, but yeah, give it to him. Holy there was man. no rationale. Absolutely no rationale to that. And a I, teammate that I played with, David Segee, who played in Texas at the time. I mean, he had a phenomenon. This guy was a phenomenal first baseman. Played the entire season with less errors, higher fielding percentage, and he still didn't get it. They gave it to Palmero.
0: That might have just ruined my weekend. It's the worst thing I've ever heard. It and also just sense. given the way Palmero
1: conducted himself the rest of the way too. But it, No sense. That's insane. insane. Alex Gonzalez for the Marlins. Machine. Had the greatest 2004 defensive season I've ever seen. Did not Machine. win the gold glove. Did not win the gold glove.
0: No gold gloves for you either. Nope. It, it was rigged. It's totally rigged. You had a thing for the highlights, though. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the metrics say, but you had some legendary plays, as you can hear in the intro to this. (laughs) They're not all hits. Some of them are some catches. Some of them are some throws. You mentioned, too, as as we wrap up here, that you got more comfortable in the outfield as time went on. And the interesting thing for me, and and this is more so relates now to Fenway Park, because we're talking about this with, you know, when you look at Fenway Park, you probably put your best outfielder in left, right? Because there's a lot that goes into that or no, or do you go with your best outfielder in right? Cause it's more cavernous when you made that move to Florida to I always want to say Miami or the, the Florida Marlins. Then I, I used to go the other way. I used to always call them the Florida Marlins. Now I want to call them the Miami Marlins. When I look back, that wasn't quite the green monster, but the teal monster was no slouch. And you got to play that thing pretty uniquely. And it also was weirdly slanted. So you would have some weird caroms as well. Uh, how long did it take you to get acclimated to that? And then, you know, how can you, uh, how can you kind of fill in some information for the fans now? Because obviously they don't really care about the teal monster doesn't exist anymore. But how that may coincide with Fenway Park's green monster and what it's like to play that wall.
1: Well, you got the left field and uh, Minute Maid as well is a a nightmare to play because that scoreboard's made out of metal. So okay. as an outfielder, I'm going back on a ball. Uh, I'm going to pull up on that because those cutouts are metal cutouts. So you could easily break a collarbone, run into one of those metal things. And, you know, our, our teal monster down here, they have the, the old tile number, the numbers they would put up on the scoreboard kind of like Fenway. And that would take ricochets off of that because they had corners on those numbers they put up. So that could go either way, but Fenway was a unique, beast. I mean, because literally you look like you're almost in the shortstop's pocket when you're out there in left field and you, and you turn around, you've only got like 10 feet to the, to the wall. It is tiny. That, that left field is super tiny. So yeah, I think for that outfield, you played super shallow so you could catch any line drive that was going over the shortstop's head and anything got any juice on it over your head is coming off the wall. So you just turn around, and you played off that wall. So it took a lot of time to be able to like, go against your instincts. Like my instincts are, I want to go get that ball. Nope. That my instinct now is it's going to be off the wall. So now I'm going to maybe fake out the the base runner, act like I'm going to catch it and then turn around for the, which was one of the coolest things to do when you could actually, uh, decoy the runner into thinking you're going to catch it and then take the ricochet and he only gets one base instead of three, um, which is always fun to do. Uh, but Batting practice, man. That was it. I took so many balls off that wall in batting practice, both of them. When I ever went to Boston, I just stood out there for all three groups. I don't think people realize that. What's that? I don't think people realize that, you know,
0: how much goes into just getting comfortable with that. So you would just take the full, like full rounds out there. You're just playing balls off the wall. Like it was live.
1: Yep. Every single day. And, and for me, that was the only way to play the outfield. Um, you know, I got, I was the first baseman my entire career. Uh, I was in triple A with the Royals. And mid-season that year, you know, I was like the heir apparent to George Brett. I was going to go up to Kansas City and play first base after he retired. So they signed Wally Joyner to a three-year deal um, midway through my AAA season. I was hitting 305 with 20 home runs and 70 RBIs. I was a great year. So my manager at the time, Jeff Cox, who ironically enough became a third base coach for the Marlins on our World Series team, he said, you're not going to be playing first base anytime soon at the big leagues. So I'm going to put you out in left field. I'm like, all right, let's do it. So we're out left field. I was only there for two weeks when Kansas City called up. Kevin McReynolds, their left fielder, got hurt, and they wanted to know who was out in the outfield hitting well that could be called up. And that's how I got called up to the big leagues. Versatility. And that goes
0: to the kids, too. Any any kids listening, play as many positions. Don't be that kid that says,
1: I only play shortstop. Because guess or- what? No, Arm, don't be that parent that says my kid's only going to play shortstop. That too. Well, that's, yeah, that, the that, that also. happy to play anywhere he, he can or anywhere that gets him on the field. But the parent's are like, oh, no, shortstop. He's only going to be playing shortstop.
0: Yeah, because guess what? You might go to high school and there might be an incredible, incredible, incredible shortstop. And, and you you're not shortstop. worthy of cracking the lineup just got to play somewhere else. So that was something I prided myself on. And thank goodness I did because there was no way I was playing over some of the guys on our high school team, but because I could play other spots, it worked out, you know, and that's, that's what you got to do. Swallow a little bit of pride. And at the end of the day, it's more important to crack the lineup. That's exactly what you did. And once you got your at-bats, you made it work. Uh, So now I got to put you on the spot as we wrap up, because you mentioned predictions. So before we have the advantage of Knowing what happened in the first couple games of the second half, I'm going to need you to give me your prediction for the team that's going to finish the strongest in the second half in each league. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean World Series, but who do you think is going to really turn it up here in the second half of the regular season?
1: Well, it's going to be very interesting uh, out there in the uh, National League West. I think all three teams, all three players, playoff teams are going to be coming from that division. So both wild cards because uh, they're going to have the best record. And, you know, I think the Dodgers are going to come back and dominate that division. Not dominate, but they're going to finish in first place just because they had a slow start. They had some players injured. Bellinger was out. Um, when you get that team rolling and healthy, I think they're still the best team in baseball right now. Um Look at Chicago White Sox have an interesting, like we were talking oh, about the American league. They have a very interesting club. Uh, they're, they're stocked on both sides of the ball. Uh, how about Tony La Russa taking over that team and leading them to where they are right now, which is old school as they get is Tony La Russa. And maybe that's saying something for going back old school, as far as managing and, and managing personalities in a clubhouse. Cause there are a lot of them in that clubhouse. Um, Milwaukee, as we talked about, I don't know if they have the horses offensively to compete with a team like the White Sox or even the Red Sox. Red Sox is going to be a, an interesting team down the stretch as well because of getting Sale back. And But you don't know what you're getting back when you get a pitcher that's been out as long as he has. He could be great. He could be mediocre. Exactly. And I, that's not really going to – that's going to make a big effect on their team. But never can out the Rays, man. The Rays – are that team every single year that they do it somehow they've got phenomenal pitching. They play good baseball. Um, and I think they're going to be a, a factor uh, going into the postseason. I was just at the futures game. And of course
0: the Rays have a pitcher out there in AAA, this kid, Shane Baz, who I, I've never seen uh, that was, I mean, I'm sure there's been guys that have done it that have looked that good, but in terms of just what I've seen from a minor leaguer, I've never seen somebody so dominant with such ridiculous stuff. He's in triple a already leading all of minor league baseball and just about every metric you can imagine. You figure he's going to be up pretty soon. They just pull these guys out of nowhere. And they, that's why I do believe in the rays. They call up the super prospect, Wander Franco. He's going to get going. They did it early for a reason. By the time they get to the postseason, that guy's going to get going. And, they're going to be a problem. I keep saying the Rays, don't forget about the Rays. And I don't know how it's going to work with Glass now with that partially torn UCL, uh, but he's throwing a little bit again now. So even if it's a bullpen roll, anything that they get out of Glass now is a bonus. I'm, I'm going Rays. I think the Rays are, are going to be the team that starts to really get it going. I expect them to make a move or two. Also, they're not going to spend, but but they'll go get a guy on an expiring deal. They'll go bolster their team. They've got more than enough capital prospect-wise, and there's going to be plenty of teams selling, like the Cubs. And on the National League side. <sighs> I I think the brewers are going to go get somebody too. And, and that pitching, that pitching is ridiculous,
1: ridiculous. Uh, You make a a good point at the deadline. It's going to be much easier to grab a hitter than it will be to get an arm because arms people do not let arms go. Nope. They do not. They will never let arms go, but you can go pick up an impact bat at the deadline and I'm sure they'll deal something. So uh, that'll be a good thing to watch for the brewers down the, what they do at the deadline yeah, if they go get one or two guys, all of a sudden things change. Cause you
0: almost have to consider Yelich getting healthy as an addition as well and getting going because that's an MVP candidate. So it's going to be fun. And as we get closer, we're going to start talking a lot more deadline time, um, start getting some deadline stories from you and also just, you know, what we think each team needs and and what these moves mean. Uh, it's going to be fun. I think the baseball trade deadline is one of the most fun times of the year. Um, maybe not for the players as much, but for us on the outside now, I think it's pretty fun. And I'm looking forward Forward to that kind of coverage as well. Baseball season back underway as we're recording this after the all-star break. A lot to go now in the second half. A lot can happen. And uh
1: we'll be going through it along the way. So many stories, so many stories, so many uh teams to watch, so many players to watch, so many races to watch, uh, both divisional and MVP, uh Cy Young type stuff. It's gonna be a very exciting second half of the season. Well, that'll do it for today's
0: episode. And uh, the group of friends out there, if you have that ticket. Sell it from Jeff and Aram. Sell that <laughs> one thing. second. Sell it. We will check in in the next episode. Hopefully, you sold it by then. <laughs>